Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And we have a topic, but before we get into that, I kind of wanted to pick your brain on something. Oh boy, this is a surprise. <laughs> this, well, I mean, I guess it is kind of a surprise. It's just been something I've been thinking about for the past, I guess basically since we had David on, but like really sort of hit, hit home the past few days. Remember back when religion was bullshit? Yes. I, like, what, what the fuck happened? I don't know if you were there from the very beginning for the rationalist stuff, but being able to see that religion is BS is like, it's not even rationalism 101. It's like skepticism 101, you know? Yeah, I think we might have talked about that in one of the very, very early episodes that like, and I, I think Yudkowsky put it really well on somewhere on Less Wrong. I saw that it was like, there, there isn't a lot of self-congratulation about uh getting the god question right because it's all like getting the werewolf question right right and it's like yeah okay cool you got this very elementary question right this isn't like a big achievement i still think there's something to be gained of like you know if you if you learn some rationality stuff and then apply that to your religion and left your faith that's a pretty big move because that's a big life change yeah but uh you know i i wasn't religious when i found this community and uh i don't there's there's not a lot of circle jerky we're happy to be atheists in this group right no i mean that was that was one of the things about rationality that like struck me as different from most of the other online spaces that people are like yeah religion's not real let's move on because that is such a simple question it will, why are we even bothering to discuss it you know it's i god i think it was eliezer who said something that uh if you're there, there's scientists out there who actually go out and believe in the trinity and shit and if these are people who are in the lab and see the way that the physical world works and are able to test it and apply all those, you know, methods of rationality, as they say, to the to the world in their laboratory. But then they leave the laboratory and they're like, yep, <laughs> Jesus is my personal savior. Um, the is obviously something very wrong with their heads. They're compartmentalizing to an insane degree and it doesn't make any sense to do so. And so for a long time. I mean, we've never really talked about religion that much, right? Every now and then we mention it. And we've had like some things on the show. We had um, Cannonball Jenkins on to talk about spirituality, but that was mainly as a drugs, you know, as spirituality kind of thing, which I can at least get behind in the fact that drugs are a thing that exists, you know, and actually have physical effects on brains. And, and we've talked a bit about finding a sense of spirituality and wonder through science and exploration, which I'm totally behind too. And then we had um, Vivian on, and she is like a witch and sort of believes in magic or something, but she's not a rationalist, you know? She's never been a rationalist. She hangs out with some of us sometimes, but that's not the same as actually being an aspiring rationalist. But then we talked with David, and he was like, I do spells. Like, he said that he believed someone called him for uh, a job because he drew a sigil and it influenced the probability of people calling him. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Why, what... Is our community degenerating because we don't have a strong enough gate on the, you know, hey, religion and mysticism is bullshit thing? Like, I thought we were post all that, and I guess we're not. Is that the open-ended question? That's my open-ended question. What the fuck? Do we need to be more anti-religious just to keep those things going? Um, I can think of two things related to that. One, I don't think that David 
and feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, would say that what he's doing is religious in any traditional sense. Okay, um, that's very true. So, like, I, and, and I don't know I'm if using... we, we can taboo religious and say, like, if it's magic. Yes. Because uh, magic is religious and religious is magic. Yeah. Um, I, I was using the wrong word there, but yeah, I do mean specifically things that are supernatural. Yeah. Because he's not talking about the creator of the universe carrying if you masturbate, right? No. He's, no. he's, he's saying that. Um, he can influence probability by drawing signs. Right. So, well, so. That's that's the thing, and I maybe we can get him to non-Jordan Petersonly answer this question. <laughs> um, he made the sounds that that someone could say that's, that that someone would say. I can manipulate probability with my thoughts or with mm-hmm. my energies or whatever. Mm-hmm. I got the impression throughout the entire episode that he didn't really think he was doing that. He did say he was going to test it scientifically. Maybe that's just good rationality. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like I didn't even want to touch that because I was like. We only got an hour. I wanted to talk about things that are actually interesting instead of going back to the religion debate. But now I regret it because now that's out there without me having like strongly come out and challenged it immediately. Yeah, I maybe it's worth getting a a write in to or a sound clip if he's down to do that to give a a full answer to this. But it's my impression that he doesn't think he's doing magic with a capital M as per Harry Potter canon, right? Or per... I brought up the secret, which is the closest thing that he was talking about. Mm. Um, and he said that was, you know, people in the community hate that. And I didn't read a lot of the, I didn't read a lot of the rune soup links that he sent. I read the one on, on debt, which to me, that was the, that was what captured me about it. That's what I thought was really fun. Yeah. The, the quote about summoning debt, like it's a demon yeah. and borrowing from the, borrowing from a probabilistic future. That was really cool. That was a really fun way to think about it. And I was like, that is a really fun twist. And I, it struck me as kind of like, an original seeing through a kaleidoscope, right? right? Um, I've often considered our modern economy to be a form of like just ritual magic. You get a bunch of humans together in the room, they all perform certain prescribed actions with these material components, and at the end, you get incalculable wealth out of it, you know? Right. Or, you know, we talked about like superorganisms. They're not organisms mm-hmm. in any traditional sense other than the actions that they do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of got it like that. I don't think that he would ever say if I think hard enough, I could move this pencil off the table or something, right? No, but that's not a influencing probability thing. There's some probability influencing probability without actually going out and doing something is it's magic. Yeah. But I mean, I think if maybe this be better have him on for, because now I'm putting words in his mouth or just guessing and I'm probably steel manning too much. Maybe I'm steel manning too much. I think that there's a non-zero chance that like your water bottle could just flip because there, there is a non-zero chance that the water and it could boil and it could freak out and fall off the t- the the couch, right? It's statistically not impossible. Okay. It's so it is, it's so close to impossible as that I would bet my life that it'll never happen. Right. But as long as we're talking about manipulating probabilities, I would, I would say, say that, that it I is, would. I bet that David. Not, I bet David would say that it, I would. I would never think that I could try and ever do that. There's no law of physics that says it couldn't happen, but there's laws of statistics that say it won't ever happen. So it is statistically impossible. Fair enough. Well. David has a day job. He doesn't win his money at the casinos, right? <laughs> right. Or buying lottery tickets. Yeah. You know, maybe not maybe not Powerballs, but you could do scratch-offs. And you could look at the seven in the whatever gas station glass tank there and pick the, all the winners because you knew which ones it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could hit the blackjack tables. You know, if you're, if you're, if you really believe you're manipulating prob- probabilities, that's what you'd be doing. I got the impression that this was like a self-help technique. Like, I'm going to focus. I'm going to put positive energies out there. And when I said I would do a sigil, which I haven't done yet, Hmm. I thought it was like, all right, I'm going to do some positive vibes. This is going to be like a meditation, kind of more in the wishy-washy way that Vivian talked about it. Yeah. Um, And I know some people that do do that, but they all 
know it's just psychological tricks and doesn't actually affect the physical world. All right, David, if you're, if you're affecting the physical world, let me know. I'm curious. Okay. All right. So I, as far as whether or not we need to hire gatekeeping for religion. Well, because I've also heard that, you know, there seems to be just in general more mysticism starting to flow into the rationalist community. And mm. there's some people that have converted to other re- to, to various religions. Okay. So I've heard of one person that converted to Mormonism and two people that converted to Catholicism. So extremely small numbers, right? That could happen to anyone just out of are these rationalists you know in real life? No. Okay. These are people I've heard of. So yeah, extremely small numbers out of a, a larger community that just statistically will happen with any community where a few people lose their heads, but but it's weird. It is weird. Was it Carl Sagan who said we should be open-minded, but not so open-minded that our brains fall out? Someone said that. That sounds more aggressive than Sagan. Maybe that was, <laughs> maybe that was James Randi or something. But, okay. Um, one of those. So yeah, like we have a pretty open dialogue. I think that many of us won't waste our time talking about werewolves and Jesus and uh, Zoroaster or you know whatever. But um, we'll spend some time thinking. Hmm. I don't know, like there's a slippery slope. Maybe it was just talking about spirituality in general because the, the skeptic community, I think, is more resistant to that kind of talk. Mm. You know, that's why it's such a hard sell, you know, to do a meditation speech at a skeptics conference, right? right. And be like, this this is really can really ground you. This is great because it sounds like a complete shill. Man, just spend 20 minutes a day for the next year doing this and I promise you'll probably notice a bit of an effect, right? <laughs> um, and many of them charge subscription services for like apps or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, there's some good ones out there that you can get for free or you can do demos for free or something and there's guided meditations on YouTube. Try them. You know, and then the other thing too is that meditation is this whole blanket kind of like religion is, right? Right. Um, covers a lot of ground in that one word. Right. And so the, the sanest version is just... Uh, at least in my limited understanding of it is something just like mindfulness, mm-hmm. you know, where really just noticing that you're thinking and taking a step back from that. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice as thoughts arise, you'll notice that their thoughts, you're not just swept away in the current. And I'm like that sometimes, but I, I, I think I finally figured out how I got to be naturally kind of okay at, at mindfulness. It's a bit of a long story. So I'll skip it, but it's, it was easy enough for me to, once I noticed that that was a technique to actually start implementing it fairly quickly. The, hard, the other hard part is remembering to do it. That's why a lot of people set schedules to do it. But like if I'm having trouble falling asleep, rather than sit there and just, you know, often it's because I'm chasing a thought and not yeah. realizing that I'm sprinting after it, right? That's so what I, helps me fall asleep a lot too. And, and so I, well, I, I fall asleep fairly easily. This, this was a historic problem. It's no, I, I fall asleep quickly now, partly because I'm super tired all the time. But <laughs> um, the other part is just, I notice when that's happening more or less immediate. Well, never more than a few minutes. Like I, I don't find myself swept away in long thoughts for more than a few minutes. And that doesn't mean that I can't carry a thought. It just means that I'm not, you, you know what I'm talking I about. Totally is there, is there a way to articulate it? Was, it was the same way that that first helped me finally start getting some, you know, decent falling asleep skills. Yeah. You, and so, you know, I'll just take a minute and check in with my body and be like, Hey, I can feel the sheets on my toes. I can feel my, my weight against the bed and just, you know, focusing on something other than your thoughts is another is part of the trick or part mm-hmm. of the, part of the way to get good at it. That's why people often like focus on the breath because it's you know quote you always it's always with you. It's just it's it's something that you can actually center your attention on. That's not a thought in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can you can do it at a at a color. You know, I, I've been to a couple of meditation centers where they do it you know with their eyes open rather than eyes closed because okay. you're focusing on like the swatch of ground in front of you, right? Oh, neat. Um, 
I find that more distracting than closing my eyes, but, and I never stuck around for the whole time because doing it for 90 minutes is super, super boring, but doing it for 10 seconds every five minutes is great. That's also um, one, one of the reasons to help me fall asleep. It is really super boring and yeah. <laughs> just drift off sometimes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if it gets you to sleep, it gets you to sleep. So, mm-hmm. um, I guess what I'm getting at there though, is that that's, we're entertaining something that I think has definite validity and is now showing, I think there's clinical studies where people are, it, it can help alleviate mild depression. It can, you know, certainly things like cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy incorporate aspects of mindfulness, mm-hmm. noticing the kinds of thoughts you're having. Um, we took something that sounds wishy-washy and, you know, ignore that. That's, that's bullshit pseudoscience, whatever. That's mysticism magic. And said, so, no, no, no there, there's a kernel of, of something super valuable here that we can all actually use yeah. and you don't have to believe anything stupid to do it. Yeah. Um, so I think we just, I, I totally agree. I think we just got to be careful not to let the stupidness seep in because, because it seems to want to get in around the edges if totally. you have the useful thing. And I think that's, I mean, it's especially harmful for people who don't have the, the sort of built up rationalist immunity already. Yeah. And you can totally Martin Bailey it too. And just say, you know, Oh yeah, no, when I do spells, I'm just meditating. It's just for, you know, my personal energies, but then you can in the next sentence retreat and say something like, and now I can manipulate the world. Watch this. Um, <laughs> and now I will do a spell to help my, you know, my democratic brothers who are trying to get elected, uh, against the Republican incumbent. You know, I'm pretty sure that they've even done large, like this is probably pseudo, well, it's definitely pseudoscientific meditators, but where they'll all get together and like, hope on one thing mm-hmm. or think concentrate on one thing, whether it's influencing random number generators or trying to make plants grow or something random. Right. So those things don't work. But so I guess what I was getting at though, is that yes, we let in what looks like bullshit and it looks, and it turns out to be pretty cool. So we have a, maybe we need more than one filter, right? So we we're willing to entertain any idea. Yeah. Um, whereas your hardline skeptic might be like, Nope, I've got my box of, real stuff and bullshit. And that's got, that's got a bullshit tag on it. It's going in the bullshit box. Right. Um, so I think it's good to be able to it let ideas too rigid. It does. Yeah. And cause then you miss out on things like meditation or, you know, there are some, maybe who may come some skeptics who haven't read Feynman that would, you know, shy away from words like spirituality. Mm. Um, you know, or Richard Dawkins can be powerful in that too. If you read unweaving the rainbow or the last, the greatest show on earth is uh, evolution book. There's gotta be another, another catch you know we we let things through once uh, once they're there is still a bullshit box i mean unless someone comes to me with a dead werewolf i'm not gonna start believing werewolves right and even if they do i'm gonna i'm not gonna just look at the body and be like that's a fucking werewolf i've changed my mind some some of us turn into dog people every every month um i'm gonna say okay that's super weird let's get some scientists in here to poke at this thing and yeah, I think that even a skeptic would do that. So where, where's the other barrier to be drawn? Um, it's got to be, I want to say consistent with our understanding of the laws of physics, but a good humble rationalist will admit that our understanding of the laws of physics is strong, but imperfect. Right. Um, Every now and then when I'm talking with someone who, who believes some sort of, you know, supernatural stuff, they'll be like, well, you don't know everything about physics. I'm like, no, obviously I don't know everything about physics. But I do know that what you're saying reeks of all the bullshit that we have found to be not true throughout the past. Yeah, I don't know everything about I don't know everything about the subject that we're talking about. But I'll bet you a thousand dollars that you don't either. Right. right. Just because I don't know all of physics doesn't mean I have to entertain your your assertion that God 
and created the universe or something. Yeah, and that, this, was, that was actually literally a conversation I had a few weeks ago. And this that's the standard thing, right? This right. is the, every evolution, every anti-evolution debate is somebody saying, "Oh, can you explain the elbow joint of the you know lesser spotted weasel frog or something?" <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, I didn't. I haven't looked into their elbows yet. You know, maybe I can have a grad student do it." Aha! You don't know. Therefore, it's it's intelligent design, and and Jesus cares about you know who gets married and who masturbates and. Um, so it, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? There's, mm. And there's rationalist techniques to avoid that. There's privileging the hypothesis. There's being aware of false dichotomies. If, if I can't explain it, that doesn't mean that your explanation is any more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, if I can't explain it, because I'm an idiot, but if, even if the scientific enterprise doesn't know yet, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't mean that your pet theory is very... Li- it doesn't mean that it makes... It doesn't mean that it's rational to believe it just because... Uh, none of us, whether it's me, people in the room, or humanity as a whole, knows, right? The idea that it could be a god that created the universe is, I guess, not physically impossible, but it is so statistically unlikely based on everything we know that it is as unlikely as my water bottle spontaneously boiling off all its water (laughs) and jumping across the room. Right, and the... (laughs) Which is to say, impossible, and I reject it out of hand. And that's fair. Um, I think it's like, there's, there's the problem of a privileging any hypothesis you know even if you just say aha intelligent design but nobody nobody just stops there unless they're mountain baileying right mm-hmm. in which case they're not stopping they're just pretending to stop they'll say look i beat richard dawkins in this evolution debate therefore you're 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 damn right we've we've got to stop abortions and you know this and that because the creator of the universe wrote this book well i've, um, I've i actually so was no, talking with someone who did more or less kind of stop there or at least as far as we, when we were talking. Yeah, because what's the point of believing that unless you're attaching a bunch of other, of other shit to it, right? I, he just wanted to believe it as far as I can tell. He, he was like, because I... It, because it meant something. Maybe it meant that there's more chance of an afterlife or that somebody in the universe cared about... or some, That the universe itself cared about him or something. Or mm-hmm. her. Um, but it wasn't it's just a random... You know, It's not like they just they put a random word generator together, formed a completely arbitrary belief, and said, you can't explain it, therefore... Yeah. Um, this, this insane random thing I believe is true. Right. Um, what was the question? How do we filter out nonsense? Yeah, basically, do we need to have a slightly stronger, not just filter out nonsense, not how do we filter out nonsense? Do we need to have a slightly stronger taboo on, on religious mysticism creeping in? It's hard for me to see how that would hurt. Yeah. Um, anything that I can think of, and granted, I don't know that much, but that would pass, yeah, that would get extra scrutiny would still pass. Because, you know, again, I, maybe mindfulness is too easy of an example. Maybe it's a, you know, well, a, the opposite of a, you know, cow pot or what was the. Uh, um, so you want to uh, let's use an example from our personal lives. Uh, remember the uh, solstice party that we had, I think, like two years ago. Yes. And they, there was, you know, some talk of uh, Cannonball Jenkins wanted to do like sort of a ritual like they had over in New York where uh, people light candles and talk about, uh, I don't know, things that humanity has done and why it's meaningful and sort of, you know, like having a sort of community ritual thing. And the person who was hosting the party said, I am not comfortable having any sort of mysticism like that in my house because they had come from a uh, very fundamentalist religion and had managed to finally get themselves excommunicated, uh, which apparently took some work. But but no, they were very uh, anti-religion and said no. And, you know, I kind of respected that because... While I thought it would be neat to try a kind of ritual like that, and I've heard a lot of good things from people who like them, I too get really skeeved out and like just. I thought I think we talked about this when we had the Jenkins on the episode, right? 
where it was like really I still have a sort of allergic emotional reaction and he talked me out of it a little bit and I, I think I recall by the end of that episode I was like okay yeah I'm willing to try this thing that you've said that sounds interesting but still when I think about it it, it feels weird and and so there's the trade-off that we're we would be missing out on things like that which some people genuinely do find valuable maybe it's that I've done things in the last year that's increased my openness to experience um, but much like I've agreed to go to you to go with you to a club, I'm inclined to believe that there are aspects of life that I'm missing out on because I've decided that they aren't fun already. I'd be willing to give it a shot. I suspect I won't have a good time, you know, holding hands and uttering a prayer to Eliezer Yudkowsky. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which is what we do now just right. before we sacrifice the, the, the babies. Now we got to think of something more rationalist to sacrifice <laughs> as we sacrifice our, our bad beliefs. I don't know. Okay. As, as we, as we evict our beliefs that aren't paying rent. Um, <laughs> God, we could make this into a, a real sermon. Um, uh, in this particular case, I think it's easy enough to say, you know what the, the, host of the party at whose place at the, at the person whose house we we're doing it at didn't want to. It's that easy for me. Yeah. Like I'm not going to, you know, say, well, I don't care. Right. This place also didn't want us to bring meat. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to bring meat because I think it's okay. Right. right. Like, uh, if you don't want it, it's your fucking house. That's fine. You know, if they want to come over outside to do it or something, you know, whatever it does, that doesn't strike me. They're not doing anything magic there. No, they're not even no, claiming. They're not. they're not claiming to. This, yeah. I, I don't think that's a good example. It, it, well, no, I mean, it's it's explicitly not magic. It's just a oh, celebration. Oh, should we of draw humans. the line there and say this? Right. This is this, this is what gets us on the slope to doing real magic. That, doing quote real magic. That's unquote. what I'm saying. If if you start introducing the more ritual kind of that stuff, then that kind of cracks the door open a little bit for the magical thinking to come back in, right? Mm. Or does it? It certainly could. Mm. Um, I don't want to be making a slippery slope argument because those are kind of bullshitty too, but... Well, some slopes are actually slippery. Yeah. And sometimes it's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's okay to slide all the way to the bottom. <laughs> and other times... Uh, you make a compelling point for infanticide. Right, yes. <laughs> um, so th- 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 there's a joke there. Um, neither of us are necessarily talking about killing babies, but long story. Um, <laughs> the Only during our solstice rituals. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That strikes me close to the meditation example. I mean, closing your eyes and thinking positive thoughts or just meditating on the emotion of love is, that sounds about as hipster as it can get, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as we all know, hipsterism is equivalent to religion, you know, <laughs> if we're, we're going to be super uh, slanderous. And yet I would say that's a valuable way to spend 10 minutes a day. Probably not six hours a day for a month, right. but banning that sort of mild thing, or not banning, but shunning it, um, or whatever, uh, or not condoning in our personal communities or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Not, not partaking. Just kind of, kind of looking at it funny and being like, hmm. I wonder, is this a bad example to say like using drugs that alter your psychology, like that alter your state of mind for, for a day? You know, like I know that people, I know people, well, I've met people who don't drink mm-hmm. or, you know, have ever tried pot or, you know, like I said, a shot because they want to be lucid all the time. Mm-hmm. That's That's the way they want to do it because that's how... They can be the best thinkers that they can be. I think they're missing out on something. Yeah. And you I know, think you drugs are you different have, because they you wear off. Any, they, well, yeah, they do. Yeah. But they can well, change you. Um, yeah. And you know, they make you a little. Some sometimes you're more open to experience. You're it's true. You're less stressed. I mean, you know, I certainly got much better at the social stuff after I started drinking a lot. I mean, I think everybody gets that. You yeah. know, just because they. But eventually, it became like a more permanent skill. Oh, where now yeah. I could be social even when I wasn't drinking. Because now you, you maybe you'll realize that oh yeah, nothing bad happens when I'm social. Or and maybe it burned out the antisocial neurons in my brain. I don't know, man. Yeah, but 
uh, one way or another, you stopped caring about it, and that's probably a positive change. Yeah. So I wonder what, you know, someone like Penn Jillette would say of, you know, like, look, psilocybin's been shown to help treat pretty major depressive disorder. Do you think that it's a good trade-off? You know, do you think it's better to lucidly view the world through the le- through the heavy haze of depression? Or do you think it's better to be tripped out for a few weeks, you know, once a weekend for a few weeks or something to um, to overcome that? And then you can be that much better at perceiving everything. Certainly, I think it'd be a waste to spend the rest of my life tripping, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think anyone would want to spend, you know, a long time doing anything like that. But the goal of what I'm trying to say is that I don't know if I could draw the line at anything a priori, um, at least without having given, giving it some thought first. You know what? I think I will draw this analogy, and this is probably the last thing I have to say on the subject. Um, I am a, in most things, a rather left of center person, and basically everyone I knew was also. So when we would, uh, when I would share things on Facebook, it would be I, I wouldn't share the the same stuff of everyone else is just repeating the party line, right? I was like, that's boring, that's echo chambery, I don't care about that. But like when I found some cool little article like on the edge of things. Kind of like being like, hey, look at this edge case. Isn't that interesting? It kind of challenges some of our assumptions. Where should, what should we do with this? I would share those because I thought those were really interesting. And uh, I realized that for a not insignificant number of people, their primary interactions with me is through the stuff that I share online, right? And so some people start saying like, are you like alt-right or, or secretly conservative or something? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, you sound a lot like one. You, I don't know if I want to hang out with you anymore. And um, I finally got the advice that says, you know what? Every now and then do that echo chambery thing. Just bust out the old abortion is great flag and wave it around or whatever flag you, you know, happen to be uh, really on the left side of. Uh, not too often, but, you know, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, just to reaffirm Sig- that. Signal your allegiance. Exactly. Signal your allegiance. Reaffirm that you are part of this tribe and that they that you believe the same things they believe. And so now, even though I find it a little tedious, I do do that uh, probably a couple times a month. And I've, I've noticed positive results. I think it might be good every now and then just to wave the flag of, hey, mysticism and paranormal supernatural stuff is bullshit. So let's all keep that in mind, guys. I can see the, the, the point you're making. I think it's a good one. Um, for the purposes of getting along with people in social settings that aren't, you know, one of the, I don't know how you define aspiring rationalist other than people who, you know, say they identify that way or whatever. Mm-hmm. But part of it is the joy of entertaining new ideas yeah. and challenging ones. Yeah. I mean, like, I found, um, you know, Sam Harris uh, had a, had a uh, blog post back before he was doing his podcast on um, profiling at airports that I thought was super compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't compelling in the sense that I don't know if I thought that I necessarily agreed with it, but I thought it was a really fun and interesting idea mm-hmm. um, that you I know, remember that article. Yeah. I mean the idea that we're spending that we're wasting time making Betty white take her shoes off um, when it's almost certain, you know, or better yet, I think we talked about this in the show. Al Gore got patted down. He got, he got extra security randomly, right, right? Did the person doing it really think Al Gore had switched sides? Yeah. I mean, if so, then we're none of us are safe, right? And there's no point in, in there's no point in not checking literally everybody, mm-hmm. um, including you know the pilots and everybody because anyone anyone can be switched, you know. So that seems like a waste. So like the idea of using our resources more appropriately made sense. And I, if I shared that and I had shared you know how I'm more pro gun than my friends on the left, or if I'm I'm more anti religion, 
um, probably than the average person on the left. There, a lot of people on the left, I think, can be anti Christianity. But if you say you're anti Islam, then you're uh, oh right, then you're, yeah, then yeah, you're yeah, suddenly yeah. some conservative nut job. Yeah, and I'm like. Even if you're just anti-religion as a as a blanket, there are more Muslims than there are Christians. <laughs> right. So therefore, I, I'm even if I'm distributing it exactly evenly, mm-hmm. um, I'm however many more Muslims that there are than there are Christians. I'm that much more anti-Islam because there's that more of them. Yeah. Um, so if there were more Christians, I'd be more anti-Christian. Maybe uh, if if all I did was share those, I, I could see how people would you know think it's whatever dog whistling or secretly conservative endorsement or something. So I can see the social benefit of doing that. So, like I said, I think it'd be really boring if at every third meetup we all go around in a circle oh and mention God. how much. So that's that's yeah. what I'm thinking, right? So that's that, the thing that's, is, that's kind of culty by itself, you know? Yeah. We still don't believe God exists, guys, right? Yeah. Right. So that sounds super boring. And I'm wondering on what for oh, on what forum another anti-religion post would take place. Right. Maybe it could be part of a larger topic. You know, if they're talking about anything remotely spirituality, just to say, by the way, religion and magic are bullshit. But, you know, this, I can't think of another example, meditation thing. Here's something to get, that we can glean from that. And this is a useful um, example. I could see someone more eloquent than me writing a, a less wrong post about how meditation made it through the filter of skepticism of rationality to become something that's actually useful, even though it came from this weird hokey box. Mm-hmm. Um so if someone wants to make that point while in it stressing that the rest of the, st- that there is a lot of hokey nonsense in that box that should stay in there. Is that what the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I can, I can see that. Right. And maybe there should be something like that because yeah, we don't want to become the group that, Oh yeah. Rationalists. You mean those people who think that they can do magic? <laughs> right. um, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of the people who can compartmentalize. You know, Yudkowsky talks about it. Dawkins talks about it. Everybody who talks, uh, Harris talks about um, Francis Collins. Mm-hmm. He was the director of the NIH. I don't know if he still is or not, but he's apparently a young earth. Well, at least a, yeah, I think he's young earth creationist. No, and, no, not young earth. Not young earth. No, he, well, at least he was the one design. that uh, he possibly intelligent design. Yeah, he was the one that uh, converted to, to Christianity after seeing the, the waterfall. waterfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Dennett came at him hard for the intelligent design part because it was, I think it was explicit. Yeah, no, he's, he's definitely, it, he used like guided by, guided by God or something in, yeah. in a PowerPoint slide. Which is like, how can you possibly disprove that? Well, here's also, a mutation. Here's what happened. By the way, God wanted it to happen this way. Well, getting into the whole thing of like, why would God make things happen through what looks like random chance that results in tons of misery and suffering for mm-hmm. thousands of years for basically everything on earth. Throwing all that aside, like how, how do you get off doing that while doing real science that requires actual thinking. The answer is some people are capable of, of that kind of compartmentalization. And another thing that, that I think distinguishes rationalists from, from people like Francis Collins would be like, if someone pointed that to me that I was compartmentalizing, I would give it some thought, hopefully in a few seconds and be like, shit, I think you're onto something. Mm-hmm. I need to figure this out and figure out what I'm actually believing here. Cause those two things don't make any sense yeah. um, to believe in, to believe in tandem. So Nothing else. You'd have to come up with a darn good excuse. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it and it would have to be darn good, right? It couldn't just be. Well, we don't know everything yet. There might be something to this. It's like there might be something to you know holding three emeralds in your left hand and an magic eight ball in your right, and you know wishing as hard as you can. Who mm-hmm. knows? Right. So like you can't privilege one hypothesis over over any other of the quadrillion you could think of. So certainly. Uh, if if someone's saying you wrote that rune wrong, it won't work, or that you wrote that sigil wrong, this won't work now, mm-hmm. then I think that there's that they've crossed the line into into pseudo into into magic, well, into 
we can't if magic is is you know the the sane version it's crossed it's crossed the the bridge into insane what was the word used before hokey hokiness yeah if the if the act of drawing a shape and thinking a positive thought and it acts a positive change on your psychology that could be that there could be something to that like there's something to meditation i'm totally open to that idea if you're saying you drew the shape wrong so now it's not going to work there's no way yeah um unless you know something about my brain yeah Un- yeah, unless it's proven that you no know, counterclockwise circles actually, you know, with your left hand to do this. Okay, well, if there's a paper that seems compelling, there, go for it. Right. Um, Probably won't hold up to a repetition. Replication. replication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm for that. We we should be politely, not even politely. Like, there's, it's not polite. You know, at the beginning of this, I'd said that you know, getting the God questions right. I quoted Yudkowsky saying that getting the God question right is like getting the werewolf question right. Mm-hmm. That's super offensive to somebody who's religious. Yeah, well, um, you know. When religion came up with my new team at work, we'd talked about some other stuff first. I was comfortable saying, and they'd ask, like, are you religious? And I, you know, I always should think of how to say it because if I say no, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, so I say, I'm as convinced of the truth claims of the Bible as I am that unicorns are real. I, that, that's to say, certain, or almost certainly not, mm-hmm. right? Enough that I'm willing to bet everything, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it, and by putting it in the same bucket as literal unicorns, if one of them was really religious, that could be offensive. So I'm not saying we should be inoffensive, but I don't think we should waste a lot of time, but a bit more time I think does sound useful. I'm, I'm convinced. Okay. Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> Shall we get on to our actual topic? I'm down. Cool. And then I did have a good pick for this episode that I want to spend at least a few minutes on. Okay. Uh, or a rat chat, excuse me. Not, a, right. not a rationally speaking pick. Everyone listen to Julia Gillis' podcast. All I will say while we're killing time, I'm listening to some, I've had a hard time getting through like the last few months worth of episodes. Mm-hmm. I find them less rationally speaking and more just her talking to cool people. Okay. Which is great. Yeah. But it was, I kind of, I, I told Julia Gillis this at a conference once that I was like, hey, I just wanted to say I, I agree with you on almost everything and disagree with Massimo on almost everything. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, you read my Facebook post. And I was like, what Facebook post? Mm-hmm. And she looked like me like as an idiot. And she's like, I, I made a joke like verbatim that someone come up to me at Tam and say this. And I was like, oh, I, 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 I didn't see it. And then I spent the rest of the elevator ride awkwardly trying to find it on Facebook while uh-huh. we're sitting there together. And it was just, it was, it was kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> but um, I, I'm, what I'm getting at is I miss his input. Um, you know, he, I don't think we agreed, me and Massimo agree on many, on really anything. <laughs> Maybe on some like the basic tenets of like the virtue of science and this and that, yeah. but like any anything that like rationalists believe, he doesn't believe. It seems like, um, but I found him fun and I found his counterpositions to things and his way of approaching things that brought a bit more dynamicism to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Now it's much more like an interview show. Although Julia holds her ground a lot in like asking great questions, I think I'm just finding them less about exploring the borderlands between reason and nonsense, like as the tag of the show, mm-hmm. and more just talking about really cool stuff with Julia asking fun questions. Okay, like the one I was listening to on the way over, um, episode two. 211 Sabine Hassenfelder on the case against beauty in physics. Oh, um, yeah. I remember hearing. Did I actually hear someone interviewed her? Maybe I heard uh, Julia's interview with her. Yeah, it okay. might have been that one. Um, it was so far. It's good. I'm half. I'm three quarters through it. Yeah, but uh, like it's not so much on like, is this nonsense or not? It was just um, but Julia's asking great questions like uh how is I can't even think of how it is. I don't know how she thinks of these things on the fly. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think of them if you gave me a week. <laughs> like she, she's crazy genius at this. Do you, do you remember the question? It oh. was basically Sabine had said something and Julia had, had kind of asked back with another example and said, how is that any different than like this weird thing that I'm uh, this weird example that I'm generating on the fly? Mm. And she said, 
or then Sabine replies, you know what? You're right. I didn't define it carefully enough. Oh. And so like she can, she can nail those down really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's valuable for that, but I was just killing time till you found what you're looking at on your notes. So oh, okay. Oh, it, did you want me to start then? Yeah, totally. But I'm just saying everyone should listen to rationally speaking. Yes. Okay. I need to set up some background for this post before we start. Is that okay? Totally. Okay. So the needed background for this is Newcomb's problem. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're familiar and I know we talked about it once before on the episode or not on the episode, but on the podcast, but that was a while ago. People might not remember. Some people may not have heard that episode. So I'm going to go over Newcomb's problem again real quick. I think that was one of our worst episodes ever. That was the game theory one. Oh, okay. Wasn't it? I, I don't remember. Oh, well, it sounds like a game theory thing. So okay. anyway, let's go over Newcomb's problem. Alrighty. Uh, Newcomb's problem. Hold on. Sorry. A quick interjection. When I say it was one of the worst ones ever, I meant that that particular podcast of ours we meant to have a guest for and i think you led well Mm -hmm. but i wasn't the least bit prepared for and i think we kind of all floundered and we got feedback of like that was not a good coverage of game theory and i was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) so anyway if you haven't heard that one you're not missing out yeah cool so all the more reason to cover it briefly right now please okay newcomb's problem is this you are approached by a predictor we will call this predictor omega Omega uh, has some access to your decision-making process. Uh, Perhaps you are an algorithm and it can look at your source code. Perhaps you are a human and it's just really good at reading human psychology or it can actually scan your brain or something. It's a predictor. It shows you two boxes. One box is clear. You can see that within it is $1,000. The other box is opaque. You don't know what's in that box. Omega says to you, I have made a prediction. If I predicted that you would open only the black box, then... You will only get what is in the black box, and I put a million dollars in the black box. If I predicted that you will open both boxes, I put zero dollars in the black box. Uh, Here's the two boxes. Make your choice, and then Omega walks away. So at this point, you can open just the black box, in which case the $1,000 in the clear box gets incinerated or something. You don't get it. And you get either a million dollars or zero dollars, based on whether Omega predicted that you would open only one box or not. Or you can open both boxes, in which case you get the $1,000 in the clear box, and you get either $0 or a million dollars in the opaque box based on, you know, whether Omega thought that you would open only one or both of them. And the question is, what do you do now? To someone who hasn't heard this problem before, one of the common replies might be, why do I trust Omega's judgment? What, what, what is Omega doing that makes me think that there's anything to their prediction? We can say that he's done this a lot of times in the past and has always been right before. Cool. Or at least 99.9% of the time he's been right. And so whether or not that's through, like you said, brain scanning, I'm a super intelligence, I'm literally God. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, the point is, is that... He's, he's so pretty darn good for, at this. For the postulate of the, of the thought experiment, are they all-knowing or just really fucking good? Just really fucking good. Okay, yeah. but good enough. Basically, yeah. yeah. Mistakes are extremely rare. Extremely rare as in one in a hundred or one in a hundred thousand? At least one in a thousand, maybe less. Okay. Then, yeah, I'm a one boxer. I don't, okay. But I'm sure that there are smart people who disagree with me and I'm uh, maybe because I don't, I don't know anything about decision theory, yeah, but well, there's, I, there's, I hear this and I'm like, this, this predictor tells me that they scan my brain and if I'm a one boxer, I get a million dollars. Well, then by God, I'm a one boxer because I'd love a million dollars. <laughs> right. So... And the people who disagree with that say that that is backwards thinking because the choice you make now cannot affect things that happened in the past, like whether Omega put the money in the box or not. But Omega is probably making the decision based on your reaction after they told you what you what happened when you walked into the room or something, right? Well, they no, they put the money in the box before you showed up. Right, but they're but they're telling you this 
saying, I know how you'll act after I tell you this. Yes. So they've already set the room up. Yeah. 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 It's considered a difficult problem by many because of that backwards causality thing, even though most rationalists have the same opinion you did. You know, if I only choose one box, I get a million dollars. So fuck yeah, I'm only choosing one box. Plus the um, marginal cost of taking two boxes is another thousand dollars on top of a million. To me, it's not worth right. it. Right. Maybe, maybe we should do something like make no, it no. I think that's a hundred thousand. I think that's how it usually is. It, yeah, it, it, it is. is. It is a thousand, but like, yeah. The, then the idea is like, well, it's a bonus thousand and who cares about a bonus thousand if you're getting a million? Well, no, no, but the idea, I think the point still stands, but to me, I'm willing to gamble away that thousand for saying I have a one in, or I have a 999,999 chance out of a hundred or out of a million or whatever of getting What if they were both dollars. one million then? It, I, oh, want, it would, I, the I highest, see what you're saying. It would have to be more in the black box right, by yeah. some amount exactly. to make it worth going for the black box. By, by some so amount, three million then, three million sure. and one million. You're guaranteed one million. You might get four million, mm. or you take a chance to get either three million or zero. You take a really good chance to get three million, though, right? So it is. It is. Yeah, supposedly a really good chance. I I would still be a one boxer in that situation. Okay. All right. Um, it is often been compared to not often. I at least one time saw it compared to <laughs> often <laughs> once. <laughs> uh, I think it just stuck in my brain really strongly, which is why I was like, it's been often I'm like, no, it's been often in my head. <laughs> there you go. Uh, been compared to Calvinism. Uh, John Calvin, I think his first name was John. Um, was they're a, all named John. Yeah, right. Uh, was a a um, theologian who believed in predestination, i.e. when you are created, God knows whether you're going to heaven or to hell, and there's nothing you can do to change that. Uh, so the, the common reply to that is, well, if I'm already either saved or damned, regardless of what I do, what is my motivation for not going out and, you know, killing, stealing, raping, whatever I want to do, because it doesn't change what happens to me in the end. And his answer, or the common answer is, well, if you were going to heaven, you wouldn't do those things. That you are you're demonstrating what sort of person you are by doing those things and making it obvious to everyone else where you're going to. This strikes me as a clear example of him having this predestination theory where, of course, he's one of the chosen and so are all of his best friends who supported his religion. Eh, and Maybe. I mean... But then this was like a post hoc reply. This doesn't sound like the kind of carefully thought out, like it was all written down at once, then shown to people that way, right? I'm pretty sure that he thought it out beforehand just because he was a very, you know, thinky guy. Well, I thought he was a, I guess I only learned about Calvin in high school. I thought he was a crank and a lot of, <laughs> like a lot of religious people and that this was. Well, he was a crank and that he was a religious. Yeah, Well, but, but also, he was a smart religious dude. So it was really written out in like the, like in the way that, you know, like people like Darwin would anticipate uh, yeah. people who disagree with them and say, well, then this is why. Then mm. what's the fucking point? I mean, that, that's the exact same argument of what's the fucking point of taking one box. Well, because because it's it's the same problem, right? But why would you believe that? Why would you believe what? The predestination thing in the first place, or is that too far afield? No, that's that's just why would you believe it is more along the lines of because God knows everything and it is part of the but dogma. In, but in this so case, not in, know in this case, Omega told me this, right? Uh huh. And so, uh, I well, don't God has also said that He is all knowing, which must mean that He knows the future, which must mean that He knows if you're going to heaven or hell, right? And he knows whether or not you can do the right thing when he made you. Yeah. I used to joke when, when I was deconverting as a teenager, my mom, my parents are vaguely religious. Um, I think I mentioned once that my mom articulated Pascal's wager to me without knowing what it was called. Yeah. Uh, she said, she had said something once about just like, I'm just worried about your soul. Yeah. And I quipped that I, I'm as God made me mom. <laughs> <laughs> if, I'm, if, I, if I'm an unbeliever, that's, that's because that's the way God wanted me to be. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, it would be bizarre to, this is just my, 
problem with theology. It'd be bizarre to be punished for something you had no control over. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I feel like I'm getting hung up on the wrong part of this problem. No, no, no. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that is entirely a tangent and not at all related to what we we're going to talk about. <laughs> but I, I really like the fact that Calvinism is basically another version of Newcomb's problem that God knows your decision algorithms and knows what you're going to do. And I'm giving a skeptical look. I think that's why you, you drifted off. I think it's a much less compelling case. Really? For, totally. Okay. I mean, there are other reasons. Well, to you be asked good, me if Omega was all knowing, right? But God is the Omega that is all knowing. But in the Calvinism case, no one actually talked to God. People just said they did. Right? Well, you and, have to give, give the, 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 the thought experiment a little bit of leeway. I okay. mean, there's no actual Omega either. We're just assuming that there's an Omega for the purposes of But I'm also of this not experiment. picking a real box. Right. right. So, but in, I in mean, the, we're in also the, not Calvinists, but, but I the, still but find it, this interesting. But in the heaven hell thing, if I'm a Calvinist, I am picking a box by deciding what kind of life to live. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're a Calvinist, you're kind of fucked anyway because you're right. Catholic. But. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I'd say to that is there are benefits to living a good life outside of going to heaven. Yes. And I guess there are benefits to one boxing in that you get a thousand bucks, which maybe is the point because a thousand dollars is, you know, small pennies compared to an afterlife of you know, eternal bliss or whatever. Mm. But. I, I would think that why do you not murder and rape people? Because you're not a happy person if you do that. I go to the Plato answer, right? Yeah. You're, it's the the non-virtuous person isn't happy. Um, they're they're conniving and they're they're miserable and they're confused and scared or whatever, right? A lot of that's armchair philosophy, but I'm sure some of that pans out in actual experiments. Um, well, I'm confident enough to assert that without having actually looked. Um, I'd bet that immoral. Well, I know this. I've met people, you know, people on the wrong side of the law or people who, who, who have done terrible things and have racked with guilt, they're not happy. They're not flourishing. Yeah. Um, so that's why, you, that's why you do the good thing. And if God's going to send you to hell forever, then fuck that dude. <laughs> um, so anyway, yes. Newcomb's, Newcomb's problem, I'm a one boxer, and I'll choose to have a good life whether or not I'm going to hell. Okay. All right. <laughs> the, the um, um, where was I? Oh, okay. So Newcomb's problem is considered usually by most people as sort of a esoteric thought problem that doesn't really have any effects on the real world. Like this ultimate Omega predictor person comes up and offers you this random opportunity that you have no control over over the outcome aside from the sort of person you already were, right? It's kind of not fair, but it doesn't matter because it's just some stupid thought process, uh, thought experiment. There's this wonderful post that uh, says, oh, Newcomb-like problems are commonplace. And I was like, that's interesting. I would like to read this. And it makes the argument that we are, in fact, surrounded by predictors. Anytime we interact with another human, we are interacting with someone who not only has usually a lot of motivation to predict what kind of person we are, but also has a lot of experience in predicting what other people do just through a life lived and has, you know, many, many eons of evolution behind them also helping with the predicting of the humans that they interact with the most. And so uh, actually we run into Newcomb like problems very frequently where people are trying to judge you based on what they think that you are going to do. I think the example given in the article was a job interview. If you go into a job interview, all very bold and confident, uh, people will pick up on that and will assume that you probably have some idea of what you're doing. Whereas if you go in as a shy person who is very unsure of their skills, they'll pick up on that as well and are less likely to offer you the job. 
And the thing is, if you are someone who is very unsure of their skills and not at all confident in yourself, it's really hard to fake the boldness and confidence. And if you're a bold, confident person, it's it's less likely that you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, every confident person will act confident. Most every almost every confident person will act confident. Yes, but not every shy person. Most shy people can't talk confident. Yes. Okay. And, and so I was going to say because I I've performed well in interviews that I did not feel well equipped for, but <laughs> that might be an outlier. And everyone who is well equipped will perform like that or better. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And also, I mean, you may have performed well enough for them to offer you the job and they could still tell well he doesn't entirely know exactly what he's saying but we need someone to do this and he looks good enough that sounds like about right <laughs> <laughs> they're willing to settle for a little less right perfect yeah um a, another example also in the post was that this person uh the the post author specifically knows two people who are really unpleasant and untrustworthy people and whenever they are in situations out in the real world they always think they're picking the best option of what they have at the time they uh like in a, a standard sort of defect or cooperate uh scenario they're like i don't want to be a sucker this would make me a sucker this is the best option at the time so they they pick the thing which is not um the most cooperative thing and as a result even though they're picking what is the best option at the moment they are not presented with better opportunities they, their lives would be far better if they were the kind of person who cooperates, but they can't fake the the ability. The, they can't fake being a cooperative person. Uh, they the only way to actually give off the vibe of being someone who is cooperative and who helps is to be that kind of person. If you are the sort of unpleasant person who defects whenever you think it would be to your advantage, that comes through and people pick up on it, and you just don't have as good of a life. I found that very interesting that we do have those sort of newcomb problems all the time and it put the whole thing into greater perspective for me. I liked it. We're talking about uh, Valentine on Less Wrong, um, the post. Uh, Actually, I, I, that was um, a precursor to the post of Valentine's. Which, uh, which precursor was that? Because I only read it the It was the one. newcomb-like problems are the norm. Oh, okay, right. So is that the one we're talking or is that the... No, that to, was okay. that was just another precursor that I had to talk oh, no, about first. That's great. And I did. that is really interesting. And now I can totally see how it leads into this because... Having just heard that, I'm not convinced of the fact. Like, what do you mean the word newcomb? I needed more explanation, and that's what the, that's the one that I read. The the follow up that that dove more into that. The other the only precursor I read to that was the one called Kensho, which um, Kensho spelled like Kenshin, but O instead of in at the end. And it's a Japanese word that what was it three three episodes ago, two episodes ago, where I went on that random tangent about like meaning and or not meaning, but like my outlook on life, and I had like this kind of perspective. Mm. I think that's what uh, Kensho is. It's the thing that's hard to articulate that I can say, but it doesn't. The the sounds don't really encompass it. You can hear it, but you can't understand it. Um, that post was really fun, so I strongly recommend that. And I finally have a word to describe that intangible thing I was trying to explain. Cool. And I'm so I recommend that. And I'm gonna read. I think everything that Valentine wrote on Less Wrong because I lo- really liked that post, and I really loved the uh, the post we're talking about today, which the name just slipped my brain again. The Intelligent Social Web. That's the one. Thank you. Yeah. So now we're on to. The intelligent social web. Yes. Okay. So the intelligent social web, if I'm following the lead up, is the omega in our newcomb-like problems in our day-to-day lives. That is exactly it. Yeah. Great. So, uh, so what's the intelligent social web? The intelligent social web starts off by uh, talking about improv real quickly. You're familiar with improv comedy, right? Yes. And I actually keep coming up, keep coming across it in 
different avenues of like from different from more than one rationalist from other places that aren't like just people who want to get good at acting mm-hmm. i'm like i should definitely go to an improv class at some point five years ago steven would never have had the confidence to do this 10 years ago i wouldn't have had the confidence to have this conversation with you so i want i think that there's no no harm in trying assuming it's cheap yeah. I, I want to give this a shot excellent let so. me know if you do i might go too all right i'll google it i'll make excellent. a note to google it yeah <laughs> so improv as most people are aware but we'll cover real quick is when a bunch of comedians get together and have random prompts thrown at them from an audience or something and they have to use those to entertain the audience and it's it's really just stuff that you can't prepare for this beforehand which is what makes it both impressive and fun to watch you like yell out something from the audience uh you're in a garden you find a stuffed teddy bear go and and then they have to work with that i'm sorry i was gonna say one thing that makes improv so uniquely fun here for the person you're probably getting around to this but that really struck out me when reading this was that you as the person in the that is improving you you your character that you're playing knows what's happening because they have to because that's that's part of what makes it a show right right um but you so, as the actor. But you as the actor don't. Right. So you're playing somebody who knows what they're doing, but the person, you, the person playing them, don't, don't know what's happening. Yeah. It, it puts you in this really weird state to where you're playing somebody who knows what's happening. I, I keep saying this over and over. Like right. It's like it's making it more clear, but no, it's, to, it was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a great, his, his example was that like the first actor says, oh, there it is. I found it. And so now you know, okay, that, that someone has found the bear and that it was lost before. And then someone else says, about time, we're almost late. And now everybody knows, oh, they, they apparently have somewhere to go and they're running behind on time. And then another person says, what do you care? You're always late to everything. And then like, oh, so now we know this specific character is a really late tardy person and this other character is annoyed at them for it. And so things keep building like this and it, it, it just sounds really fun to do. We do got to get <laughs> together and do this at some point. Deal. Um, but the point is that everyone is working together to build a scene. Everyone is in this sort of network it's it's uh, they're a node in a network that's making the scene and they all have these constraints on what they can do and they're trying to figure out what they can do but all working together they get to make the scene without there being any director even any real director any real script they're just working off each other to get to a goal and they have to do it in a way that coheres yeah with the other players yes right yeah they, they have to work together they have these roles that are emerging this is sounding more and more like real life yeah. <laughs> right uh, so the post goes on to think that this web can sort of be thought of as, as a distributed system that computes the relationship and, and guides everyone within the node, even though there's no specific director, the, the interaction of them working together works sort of as a director to move them in a direction, as long as they are all cooperating and working within it. And non-cooperation in improv is jarring and uncomfortable for everybody involved yeah and doing it in real life is just the same yeah um so i mean i can cite an example of bad improv from what's that show that every rationalist really likes um there's uh, a number the of big things? bang theory um oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i um, see all the hate mail coming in <laughs> that was a joke yeah but you know i think and i like to unironically for the first few years it, it got worse and i get like it was complete like the best term i heard for it was nerd blackface yes but it, you know, it was comedy with a laugh track. Like that, that's how mm, it was going to be. That's true. But there, there was a part where, um, I can't remember what the point was, but Penny, the one of them that wasn't a complete socially inept nerd and the one who was trying to be an actress, um, was trying to teach Sheldon to like fake confidence or something. So she tried to give him an improv lesson and she, she opens the scene and she's like running a shoe store 
and he's like, can I get a chocolate frozen yogurt or something? <laughs> and she's just like, right. We're a shoe store that also sells frozen yogurt. Uh, it, it was the, like you could see her, you know, he's ruining it mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to keep cutting you off. You're, you seem like you're on a roll, but no, the, go for it. this, this post was like the best exploration of what, um, Yudkowsky talks about in the sequences and method in the methods of rationality as of roles. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what you're supposed to do. They use the phrase at least a couple of times in methods, um, uh, reading from a script. Mm-hmm. And that's because, well, as the stern administrator, you're supposed to say this, you're supposed to feel this and you're supposed, this is the role that you're playing. This is what everyone's expecting of you. Yeah. And therefore what you're expecting of yourself. Yeah. And going off script is uncomfortable and weird. Um, and the point and the post points out that this is actually, or Valentine says specifically that this is just sort of a guess and not actually borne out by any research, but that in the ancestral environment and not really even to this day, uh, any individual survival depends on them being part of a group. Like humans on their own generally don't live very long. It's the fact that we are in a group and can work together towards goals that makes us able to live. And, you know, that's also true. As long as you are in a community, generally individual people don't starve. They aren't put out to starve. If if the community is starving, everyone is starving equally because there's no one person holding hoarding all the food while someone else dies. It's... I mean, some people might die sooner because they're more susceptible to disease and the other stuff that happens during a famine. But as long as you're in a community, you know you're not going to be the guy that dies of starvation if you have a bad few days out in the field. Going with the script reading and the roles and stuff too, imagine being the one farmer who had an adequate yield that that season or something, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, I have exactly enough for my family. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the community would get together and lynch you 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 and your family if you had said, no, we're going to lock our doors. We're going to be fine. Sorry, guys, y'all had bad luck. And to an extent, many people would feel pressure to say, you know what? We'll all suffer, but none of us will die if I share. But my family could get get by great if we we kept what I have. But this is sounding more political than I'm meaning for it to. (laughs) But um, what I'm getting at is that this is a two-way street. And no one has to has to articulate the the role that either that the that the the starving community has and that the, the that the lucky person had right yeah um but if we take a step back and instead of looking at it as individual people looking at it as a person interacting with the network of all people like the the quote-unquote director that we were talking about earlier the the person needs to be accepted within the group so they need to fit in in order to survive and the group needs to know what to expect from each person within this network so they know what they can do with them. They know what roles that person will fill. And, and as you're saying, it's, it's a great distillation of the concept of roles and why they work and why, for example, people keep getting into abusive relationships over and over and over again because that is the role they know how to play. They, they know how to play the abused husband or wife. Um, and so once they get out of that relationship, unless they have learned another way to interact with the network, they'll just fall right back into that again. Because some roles really are shitty. I can think of one from real life. Um, and this this isn't too personal. I think my dad would probably just own this. He has hated his job since he started there 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe he liked it in the beginning. Maybe he did. Maybe he just liked it less. Um, but, you know, he, he works as a, as a maintenance and um, I don't know what you call it. Uh, uh, a, an engineer at the uh, water treatment center in Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, they treat wastewater. Uh, the stuff that comes out of your toilets goes down the pipes and lands at his work. And, um, you know, he builds the machines, he maintains them, he deals with all the, you know, the other stuff. 
but he hates his job and he's hated it for, I think forever because it's a crappy job and it's physically demanding it doesn't pay as much as it should um, the only benefit is that it's a state job and it pay, or a city or a whatever a government job and it, it, it has good benefits from that but it's it's his role as the 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 provider the man of the house that part of his part of his script says you hate your life oh. and it I think it's only been the last few years that he's given his, himself permission to like have fun and enjoy things because otherwise that's part of my it's part of my position I've got to be it part of my position is misery um, and you know this might be a tad uncharitable but I don't think it's entirely I don't think it's I think most of it's right it took kind of a, a catalyzing event in his life for him to realize you know shit I should be having fun and that that was such a weird shift because he had spent decades saying fun isn't my place. Mm. You know, it's my job to go to work, hate every minute of it, and then come home and you know deal with kids and not get enough sleep and this and that. And you know, um, I I remember even like as a kid, my mom would you know she went out to go visit her friend in uh, California. She's gone for a week, and rather than him like enjoy the week off and do something he wanted to do, he like redid the kitchen floor and put down tiles and stuff. And he like didn't enjoy his time, bec- and he like he took the week off of work. Okay. But how I, I'm not painting this picture correctly because it sounds like this is something he wanted to do. He would say things like, nope, that's what I think, you know, my wife would want me to do was, you know, do, some, do something like this. Um, not like, hey, I should take the week off and go f- do something fun. You know, he didn't have hobbies. Um, now he's got hobbies and he does fun stuff. Cool. But uh, I'm trying to make this a well-rounded point. I feel like I'm going to just taper off because I can't remember where I was going with this. So an example of a role in real life that was obvious to me before I knew what the word role meant in this context. Okay. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. That was, that was a cool tangent. I just lost my place. Oh, okay. And so taking this back to Omega, the post um, likens the, intel- the social web that you are within that is guiding you and that needs to know what you're doing to Omega. Omega is always trying to predict what you will do and uh, actually spends a lot of computational resources trying to predict you, the, uh, the network does, in, in ways like, you know, gossip, small talk, speculation about you, and also just, you know, observing your body language, that kind of thing. There's a lot of work that the network puts into being able to predict you and to tug you into the roles that it wants you to be in. And it will reward you oftentimes for playing your role. And I think that was that was the thing that, uh, I'm putting my notes aside now. That was the thing that I most got out of this particular this particular post is that humans in general, as far as I know, and certainly me specifically, I need to feel like I am useful. And I think most people need to feel like they're useful. And I think it's it's a deep human need, which has been put into us through the process of evolution, specifically in order to fulfill these roles, in order to keep our community going, in order to keep uh, you know, our genes procreating and the human race moving along, because when we all work together as, as a larger network, we can survive and thrive and do amazing things. And the way that we can motivate humans to do that is by having this instinct that you have to feel useful. And that's what roles gives us. It gives you a way to feel like you are contributing and you are valued by your community. And I think that is one of the things that is most missing from the modern world. It's like my community is spread out among three cities right now. We get together once a month really to see each other. And the rest of the time I'm kind of 
alone. Like the the physical community I live in are all strangers. I don't know any of my neighbors. I I, I guess the guys next door I've talked with once or twice, but they're not my community. They're not the network that models me and relies on me. And the modern world seems to have tried to replace the approval of your peers and the feeling that you are fitting into the the network by by giving you money instead. It's like, okay, you're doing a good job. The network is using you. Here's money. And I mean, money is great. It gives you comfort. It gives you food and air conditioning and stuff, but it doesn't fulfill that need to feel like you are valued in a community. And I think that's why life seems so empty for so many people right now is because we are, we don't have these roles. And I kind of want to at some point work out some way to have an actual rationalist community built up where we kind of can have both a community that needs everyone and has some way for everyone to contribute and feel like they're useful. And I just don't know how the fuck to get that without all living in close proximity. Because I really am starting to get the feeling that being able to see people on a at least weekly basis, if not every few days, and be like, hey, I see you. You're a cool person. I read your body language. I'm giving you a smile because I remember the thing you did for me yesterday, uh, last week or yesterday or whenever. And we are all in this together, I think is kind of psychologically important. And we can get by without it as, you know, the past century of America suburban living has proven, but it doesn't necessarily make us happy. And, and I think this post kind of clarified why, because we have that need to fulfill roles deeply ingrained in us. That's an interesting take, and I, I, I see a lot of the points you're making. I didn't draw that point. I took... Well, it's not I, explicitly in the post. No, this no, is yeah. Just me, no, yeah, know. for sure. It's, it's the way you took it, and I like that. It's interesting. I took, I took it in other ways, but I guess responding to that, there's a couple of things. Like, on one hand, this ties into, you know, Hansonian signaling. It's not enough to just be helpful. It's an, it's, it helps you feel good, and Plato might say that's enough. Aristotle might say that's enough, but it might make you feel good, but not as good as you would feel if you if you helped conspicuously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were if you were secretly funding some important project, you might be like, "Ha, this is happening because of me," and that might help you a bit. But if somehow accidentally everybody found out that you were the one behind it, yeah. oh no! Now you've got all this social capital, and everybody knows that you've been helping. Yeah. Um, that's much more important. That's much, that gives this bigger rush. I think that's why it feels so much better to volunteer within your community than it does to send a thousand dollars to AMF because you don't see the the people that are being helped by the malaria nets. They don't come up to you and say thank you, you know, and you're like, yes, I know objectively I just saved half of a life or whatever it was, but that's not the same as giving a sandwich to to your buddy who forgot his lunch and needs some food. Totally. And it's it sucks because, you know, Peter Singer, I think, is is absolutely right. The person you know, think think of the good you're doing, the the life you've saved, versus you know, even if you spent a thousand dollars and went around, you know, and bought. Um, I've been thinking of doing this. Just I don't. This isn't a good use of charity money to, to everything that I preach. Um, you know, putting together like gallon Ziploc bags of like um, supplies to hand out to homeless people. Mm-hmm. You know, things like um, change, toothbrushes, uh, tampons, um, condoms you know, socks, hand warmers, all that stuff. Right. And spend 500 bucks or whatever, get a bunch of these and start handing them out. Right. Um, cause you, you know, you get a lot of thanks and all that. And those people are marginally better off for having those and sometimes way better off for a little while. It's not going to solve all their problems, but you know, warmer for a night, whatever, um, a more comfortable period. But, um, Oh, my point about singer, uh, singer to point out that they aren't dying, Mm -hmm. right. They're suffering and that sucks, 
but their suffering is less than the people that you can't see. And just because you can't see them doesn't make them matter less. And yes, on a life-to-life basis from a God's eye view, totally not. But from you as, a, as an evolved primate, uh, a social primate, it, it, it just does. And it's kind of a, just a drag of our psychology. I mean, so as, as far as ways to solve that problem, I mean, I, somewhat easy thing that I've tried doing is like actually befriending people that I work with. Oh. Um, and it happens to be that I work with people that are capable, that I'm capable of befriending. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my, I can't remember who it was. I knew somebody who worked at a bank and their only three coworkers were women in their fifties and they were a 20 something guy. And it's like, we have nothing in common. You know, what am I going to go to your grandson's graduation with you? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, oh yeah, I went to my graduation a few years ago. We can share <laughs> that in common, but you can't, you know, so you can't befriend people too distant from you, right? Um, I don't know. I've, I'm I'm good friends with a number of older people at um, like my book club. Because you have something in common. That's true. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, we both like the same kind of books. Yeah, you're, you're not forced there by proximity because you have a similar job. Right. So the other thing I guess would be like finding something that you can contribute to that you can conspicuously contribute to that you don't have to be pr- physically present for. Um, for example, at my work, I, my team was reassigned to a bunch of old boring shit that none of us like doing, and it's not fun for anybody. So in the side, on the, on the side, we're not doing it at work because we've all seen Silicon Valley, but um, we're building an app that one of our, old, that one of our coworkers came up with. So we're, we're in the planning stages of that now. We're going to start actually putting uh, you know fingers in our keyboards for this in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Um, but then we'll all be contributing in a way that is super obvious. Did you do this yet? We're going to have you know a Kanban board where you know this. I'll pull this story down. I'll have my name on it. People will see that I did it, and then it'll be done. Um, it seems doable to do things like that that aren't necessarily coding related as far as other stuff. Maybe that's something that we could dedicate our local community to, to thinking of things that you know, you could gamify some sort of charity thing. You could, you could, I can't think of ideas right off, but it seems like the kind of thing our community would be good at thinking of solutions to. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you do something community building where you get sense, where you get a sense of community with the people that you're hanging out with in the room when they're not in the room. Mm-hmm. The other way to take the, one of the things that I, one of the other things that, that, that post mentioned was that this, this, this social intelligence web forces you into roles. One way to like notice that for yourself, if you haven't yet is just think about many people act differently when they visit home. Mm-hmm. If they don't live at home, um, this is super apparent for me, even in ways where I didn't think it was like, I had a friend that I haven't seen in a few years come visit. We went out to dinner and my partner pointed out that, Hey, you acted like a younger version of yourself hanging out with that guy. Cool. And I was like, I did. I didn't even notice. And I couldn't put my finger on any of the behaviors. I don't think she could either, mm-hmm. but it was just, that being, I was I was playing the person I knew four years ago that he knew four years ago. Yeah. So as not to violate his expectations, right? right? So partly of what I've been doing the last year or two, and that's partly because I have more slack in life and et cetera. There's all kinds of fun ways. This all ties together. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, is I've stopped doing that for the most part. Oh, I've tried. I've made an effort to stop doing that. To stop doing which? Playing, putting on masks, putting on oh, roles well. for different for different places. Okay. I'm more or less the exact same person at home in my parents' kitchen when I'm visiting them mm-hmm. as I am at my house mm-hmm. or at work. Um, so like I brought my real self to work minus a couple of the parts that, you know, don't fit in. Like I can't be, you know, super cute at work like I'm at home <laughs> because, you know, Rachel and I will, you know, say super adorable things that would really turn, turn off my coworkers. No, it would make uh, everyone's heart uh, eyes turn into hearts. Well, we'll see so, some part of that, you know, just wouldn't, would, would be so unexpected as and this. This is part of like why roles are important, but I think also why they, um, like I, I'm making it, I'm kind of making 
opposite cases here. I'm mm-hmm. saying that I think at least for me, I like having less variance between the roles that I put on. Um, I find it's more relaxing yeah. and I am, it is still different. You know, if, if, uh, if Rachel visits at work yes. and, um, it can it, be a little uncomfortable having those two worlds collide. Well, it's for, it's at the point now where it's not uncomfortable, but it's interesting mm-hmm. and it's fun in a way that is, um, but there are ways, you know, some people are very different and that would make it uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. then that, that, I think that's the stress that I'm trying to do away with by, by being more of myself all the time. But I don't hold anyone's hand at work. You know, I don't, uh, uh, I don't say cute things, right? Or something like that. I, I'm trying to think of other things, but you know, you get the gist. Oh, you meant literally uh, hold hands. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. So, you know, if Rachel comes to visit and she comes out to lunch with me and the team or something, um, I'll hold her hands during that mm-hmm. because I like doing that because I'm, I'm, I'm with her, but they don't know me as, you know, the kind of like, you know, the person who does that, right? Right. Um, I'm not sure. I felt like I was, I do this probably with every other thought that I have, I feel like I was onto something and then I forgot it. Oh, damn. Um, that's okay. But no, yeah, I, I think, I think you made a good point about it's better to not have as many roles that you have to switch between. I think when possible, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously like if I was the kind of guy who went to nightclubs, I couldn't bring nightclub Steven to work. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you don't also want to like kill nightclub Steven because he doesn't fit in with the rest of your life. Right. Um, so some parts of that are really, are really valuable. Um, but maybe have as much cohesion as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a good case for this in um, in a completely different context, but in uh, Sam Harris's book on lying, he talks about uh, you know he, he's going against all the he he raises all the cash examples of like why people say it's okay to lie sometimes, and he he brought up like the example of like a used car salesman who gives good deals to friends and family, mm. uh, but not to strangers because they're out to make a buck and mm-hmm. you know that's part of the job. Mm. But then that puts you in this weird position where it's like oh oh you're Karen's sister. Oh, then you don't want this car. You know, let me give you one oh. of the good ones. Oh, okay. Or let me give you an actual deal. I told you I was giving you a deal, but I wasn't. Yeah. Um, so like that person doesn't have the slack in their life to like, you know, not try and make money when they can. They can't, they can't treat every customer like family because they wouldn't walk away with any money. But it's that kind of disjointed connection, right? So I guess when possible, reduce that variance. But the other thing for me was to to notice when you're doing things. Uh, I, I had an, it was like a week long incident in would have been in like November or December where for a week I, at work, I was acting, I just been, we had just changed teams and started on a new project and I was acting. I think I mentioned this on the show before. I was acting like a coworker that I really emulate or that I was, I was emulating a coworker that I really admire rather. And I was pulled aside by one of my teammates and he's like, you're not fun right now. This wasn't you two weeks ago. What the fuck? Like huh. this, you're, you're kind of making working with you a huge drag at the minute, at the time I was like, well, that's just because, you know, reasons. And then when I thought about it that night and I kind of realized what I was doing, I was playing another version of Steven that turned out to be less me, less what they were expecting. Mm-hmm. If I was always like that, then, um, and the guy that I was emulating isn't an asshole, but he was more dedicated than I was, than I am typically and more than my team was. Yeah. And that's what I was going for. Okay. Um, and so the network managed to nudge you back into the role they wanted. Well, and into the role that I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it more just pointed out to me that like, I think because they, to run with the metaphor, saw me pick up the script and start reading from it. And they're like, those aren't your lines right? Nice. These are your lines um, yeah. that it was, it was an obvious example for me to, to notice an update from that. And then moving back was a lot less jarring. Work was more fun and working with them was more fun. That's awesome. Um, so is there a takeaway here? 
It, I guess hopefully someone can glean something from that. I I was trying to go somewhere and I I I never wrap up, but there's something to get there. We yeah, we got to work on sticking the landing somehow. But <laughs> I'll start. Oh, the journey is fun landings. though. Yeah. yeah. I did want to say that the post did have one thing that I thought it was going a bit too far with, um, where it said that most people will never come to change their mind unless their network is either pushing them or pulling them in that direction. The reason it's so hard to get people out of religion is because everyone that they know is in their religion and pulling them that way. And I think that takes away too much agency from people. Uh, I don't know about you, but I left my religion despite basically my most of my life being, you know, in that religion and being taught about how it was. And I was married to a fundamentalist Christian for a good six years, and I never was even slightly tempted to slide back into religion. There's there's a lot of things where I, I think you can just stick strong against the network. And sure, there's pressure on you to to backslide. I don't think people are quite so um, at the mercy of Omega as, as he was pointing out in there. So did you have no other community that you joined by leaving your faith, whether it be one person that you really admired or one really compelling argument that you wanted to be seen as the kind of person that could be persuaded by arguments or... Well, I guess... Um, by the time I was leaving, many of my friends were leaning in that direction as well. But so I think you could have been, I had sought that out, you know? I, I think I, I might have a problem with how little agency I assigned to most people much of the time. Yeah. Um, not, not, not most people much of the time. With many people some of the time. How's the way to put this? Yeah, the, the post says, um, it looks like one of the greatest challenges of rationality is that people change their minds about meaningful things, mostly only when the web tugs them into a new role. Actually thinking in a way that for real changes your mind in ways that defy your web-given role is socially deviant and therefore personally dangerous and something you're motivated not to learn how to do. I find, just to play devil's advocate to you, I think that I find that somewhat compelling. We happen to be in a niche community that, that does endorse that, unless they're believing in magic, in which case we're going to shit on them for 10 minutes on the podcast. So, um, but Oops. like, no, no, I mean, and, and I brought that up tongue in cheek, but yeah. like I was pulled into cryonics by the web as trying to move into when I was first discovering mm. rationality yeah. and this this community and all these geniuses were into it I'm like okay I had heard of this mostly from places like Futurama um, so this is something that some people actually believe and there was this couple of years of disconnect where I wanted to be into it but I wasn't convinced yet but I really wanted to be there yeah. maybe that's what it's like to like want to believe in a religion or something because I think I signed up before I fully bought it um, I, I signed up because I was convinced enough to, um, and enough to even proselytize for it, but kind of shyly. I wonder um, if that's what gets a lot of people into EA too, is that their friends are into EA. That's probably a lot of veganism seems to be contagious. Yeah. Maybe similar kind of thing. It could be. And if you're, if you're the only vegan in your group of a hundred friends, there's probably some part of your web that rewards uh, you being that brave outlier, mm. right? Okay. Um, if it really was just you being the one person and literally no support, you'd probably drop it mm. most of the times. So there are some, you know, some, some heroes who would, who would be able to pull through. But like, I think that, you know, using the veganism example, if you're getting, if you're getting joked at by your coworkers in a way that's not funny to you, it's, it's enough. You have somebody to go complain to and they not complain to go, to go report this to. And, they'll be like, you're being so brave. That's awesome. And you're like, I knew it. I'm yeah. validated. Yeah. Um, I would like to think that people can pull away from their social pressures, but I can see, I can see both. I think 
I think people do it more often than the post gives them credit for. That, yeah, it is hard to fight the web and maybe in a lot of things you go along with it, but I think there's certain things that people are just willing to fight for and be like, no. Well, also we have a weird web is kind of my other point. Right. So like, I'm trying to think of an example from my life where I've stood up against the crowd in a place that didn't reward standing up against the crowd. Um, And nothing's coming to mind right away. If I did, like I said, if I did, and I was the one weird person at school talking about cryonics, well, you know, I don't think I ever went back and, you know, told my cryonics friends about the, the jokes that people made or something, but it, but I knew that I had like the vindication. I don't know what to make of that. At the very least, we can aspire to be the kind of people that can stand up against, you know, or that can, because again, you don't want to take random stances against the web either, right? Right. Um, because the web's pretty useful. The web's super useful. Gives Um, also gives you that role that gives you a sense of fulfillment in life, which is neat. Yeah, that and like that's part of the reason that I I, that I wanted to work to cultivate like a local physical community of rationalists was, you know, you could go to this group of people and meet them in meet space like this, and then say this is this is this thing, and like oh cool. And you get some real life feedback from that. Yeah. And like when we met Robin Hanson, he asked a couple of times, like, what does your meetup do? You know, I've, I've gone some less wrong meetups where they, you know, their community is doing this and this one's doing that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we just hang out. But that wasn't a really good answer. The good answer would have been like, this is a local community of people that hold us, hold us to norms that we all want to have. Ooh, that's um, a much better answer. Well, it didn't come to me until a couple weeks later. Uh. Um, but that that's the goal, right? I want to have a group of people and having the scheduled meet space meetups helps keep that community alive. Whereas if it was just an email exchange list, then you know, you stop reading them. Yeah. Um, but if you feel compelled to go meet them once every month or two, then you're more in this community. Yeah. And you know, I want a community that holds me to the norms of, uh, being able to change your mind or being confident enough to stand up to bad positions or bad opinions or something. Right. Yeah. So, if it wouldn't seem totally out of the blue and like, please validate me, Robin Hanson, I'd write him that answer. But um, we can just trust that he listens to the podcast. So. Oh, he probably does not. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm joking. Very busy. Okay. There's, there's no way. You yeah. may want to write him, actually. That, that, that was interesting. Eh. He may find that of use. Yeah, I, maybe. I feel yeah. like I'm just looking for him to validate it, but uh, yeah. you can. <laughs> or you know, maybe next time he's in town. We'll yeah. hear something out. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. We got to get him back in Denver. Totally. I did have listener feedback but we've been going on for an hour and a half so we should probably wrap it up i did have a a a rat chat for this episode (laughs) oh yeah i thought would be fun do it so i read an article on a fun rationalist blog that you guys should all check out called uh death is death is bad um (laughs) and uh it was called the tyranny of biology ah (laughs) and the author's position seems to be that they they said that they're now a single issue voter on the issue of uh reproductive freedom uh that if there's if the candidate is anti-abortion, they're anti that candidate. Um, and they, they drew a long historical case from somewhere. I want to ask them about that, uh, that, that reproductive freedom was really what broke us from the shackles of a shitty, uh, society. You know, the, the short brutish life that, uh, that Hobbes described. So I, I agree that reproductive freedom is super important. And, I could see it being a great litmus test for being a single issue voter because it's unlikely that I'm going to want to endorse any candidate who's, who's anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could see it for those reasons. What I remained unconvinced of was that, um, was really what I felt like were the strong claims that the ladder that dragged us out of our shitty, no one has enough resources, everyone's miserable, everyone's scraping by life, 
was the ability to control when you had kids. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I've got the author in the room, and I, I wanted to ask you to, to, to explain that. Maybe I misunderstood something, or maybe you no, can, I, you can well, convince me. Well, as someone who has spoken to this author before, I think I can maybe uh, uh, speculate on, on his, his thinking when writing, uh, writing this post. Um, the so no one's confused. Inyash wrote this article. I did write this article, and I did not plan this all at all. I didn't know that Stephen was going to bring this up, uh, so I am taken by surprise here. <laughs> oh, good! I got I got to got you too. Yes, uh, but I don't I don't want to say that it is the only thing that is uh, responsible for dragging us out of the m- misery of deprivation that we had as a species for so long. Uh, I think that there is a lot to be said for the scientific method and agriculture and industrial revolution and all those things that have made us a, a better species. But I think that that is a uh, absolute reproductive control is a not sufficient thing to get us out of the misery we're in, but it is a necessary thing. We can't have that without uh, the reproductive control because until that point, we are still shackled to women cannot be full and equal participants be- unless they choose to be celibate because they could at any time be, uh, I don't want to say afflicted, <laughs> but if it's if it's not uh, something that you wanted and were planning for, it can be kind of an affliction with this, uh, this burden that first distorts your body and has huge ramifications for your biology for the next nine years, but also permanent effects on your body thereafter and on top of that now saddles you with a human that you are responsible for and yes obviously they give you meaning and love and all that too but your life is drastically changed once you have the responsibility of another life and that is a lot of fucking labor to take care of a small human so getting the ability to choose when you want to do that as opposed to being forced into it is i think necessary for human flourishing to get us past the point where Every woman has to pair up with a person that can help with that whole child rearing process. Can you explain that last part? First of all, you said nine years before you meant nine months, I think. I did mean um, nine months, sorry. So, yeah. No, that's fine, just in case anyone nitpicked. Yeah. Um, well, the second part is that you are extremely vulnerable, uh, both when you are pregnant and during the first several years of a child's life, um, where it's usually good to have someone else with you both providing resources and providing childcare and possibly protection. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a father or even a male, but it, it does make you, you it need curtails some, your ability to be an independent human. You need somebody else who's not also pregnant to be able to fight off saber toothed tigers while you're, you know, holding this baby. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So that, I don't think you used anything like uh, necessary, but not sufficient in the post. No, I didn't. Uh, well, so you made it sound like it was the only thing. That, no, was, that okay. was my nitpick. <laughs> I, I um, was trying to put forth a very strong argument, but I also, uh, I admit it is, and and know and acknowledge it is not the only thing, and trust that my readers probably knew that as well, I hope. This reader thought that you were making, that that was like your thing, that like, no, this is it. It wasn't anything else, so I, I'm an idiot. Well, but. I mean, I, I don't think it's your, you're an idiot. I think I was also particularly passionate about that because we aren't in danger of losing agriculture or the p- benefits of industrialization. And yet there's still some asshole idiots out there who want to remove the uh, benefits of reproductive freedom. So um, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not we're not in danger of sliding back into not having enough food, probably in the United States, but we're not in, unless the fucking Amish take over. <laughs> I don't think we got enough of them right now. Right. So but we are in danger of, of modern civilized people advocating against something that can involuntarily, you know, 
shackle your life mm-hmm. and people and not just shackle one person's life but it restructures all of society around these considerations it makes society less free because there is a social infrastructure that has to be in place to uh, address these problems you mean like uh adoption centers or something no or? No, no, no not adoption centers i mean th- for lack of a better word the society becomes more like a patriarchy specifically to address these issues and the the ability to break out of the old patriarchal system is predicated on there being this uh reproductive control okay i think i'm i think i see that i mean i do see that but i think that that answers my my confusion um i'm just checking to see if there's any confusion left um i think it's much easier to have a free and open democracy uh when you have a possible full participation of all citizens as opposed to um, a society where you treat women more like um, baby factories, uh, which I, I know that's not the entirety of patriarchy and that is painting it in a very grim light, but that is part of it. And that sort of society is much more ripe for things like tyranny or, or general dictatorship-ish qualities I can see that. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about at the last meetup um, that, you know, having kids isn't something that like you add to your life, um, like getting a new house. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that like I have my old life and this new house. It's like, nope, my old life, I've taken this way. Now I'm I'm on the life where I'm carrying a kid for the rest of it. And, you know, people say for 18 years, it's not. It's for the whole life. Yeah. My my mom still calls her mom, you know, Um, probably not as much as she did 50 years ago, but um it's or 40. I don't know how old people are. And it, it happens to be a fact of our biology that like you, you know, you and I could theoretically sire hundreds of kids if we were just totally pimping. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, it's getting late. Um, but we could do it without ever knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you can't mother 10 children without being aware of it. You're, you're, un, you're, you're impossibly aware of all of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, since it, it is a, a, not just a, a life addition, but a life, refactor completely um if it's the kind of thing that this can happen to half the people but not the others mm-hmm. um then yeah it makes things unfair right um it has massive ramifications yeah no but thank you for bringing it up that was that was interesting i've i don't think i've discussed one of my own posts before like this or at least not had someone question me on it on the podcast i'll see if i can surprise you again in a few months out of the blue well um first i have to write a post that's worth talking about again so. well i just kind of started actually trying to make a point of reading sources that i like again so um plus i have like the free time at work to do it so it's not like i don't have free time out of work i'm just you know not very productive at home was there a line in there something along like this might make women even supportive of the patriarchy because it gives something or whatever yeah well i mean the patriarchy did have some um benefits for women too uh, no, you, should, you should probably caveat that. <laughs> okay. Are you going back to the whole roles thing, as long as you were not always the case, obviously, but for the most part, if you played the role of the, the mother and the home maker, baby producer kind of person, uh, you could expect to be provided for and taken care of. The man had a lot more power, obviously, and you could get some really shitty deals if you have a bad person man that you didn't know uh was bad or if someone just changes later on in life you know or decides you know i want to abandon you but uh given the fact that you are forced by biology to 
take these risks with your body and have these obligations put upon you, it is of some benefit to have a society that is structured in a way that makes that the default and makes some provisions for you to be able to do that with your life, to be able to live while that is a thing that you do. Gotcha. In a world without reproductive freedom, you're better, you're often better off allowing yourself to be shackled because it meant more chance of success for you and your offspring. Right. Um, Okay. Yeah. Even though it's shitty, it can often, it's usually better than the alternative. It was the only game in town. Yeah. I mean, so imagine, you know, a single mother trying to, you know, hunt and gather on her own while cradling a baby in one arm. Right. Right. And and that just, just because of the, you know, situations, both technological and social, the way they were, I believe it was, um, I think it was Scott Alexander, but I don't remember exactly. Uh, said something along the lines of, if you take 10,000 modern day enlightened liberal people and dump them back in the Nile Delta, uh, 3000 BC with the technology they had 3000 BC within one generation, they'd be back to worshiping God emperors and building the pyramids because that is the social structure that works for surviving in that environment with that technology. Democracy would not work there. They would all die. So put another way, the, the patriarchy couldn't be can't be shattered in a world where there's no reproductive freedom. Yes, patriarchy is is necessary for survival. In a world without in a world without reproductive freedom. Yes, yes, okay, yes. Yeah. And I well, knew, I knew in, that was implied. Both, in a world, but I, both I always, without reproductive freedom and with the technological levels we had before. I knew that was there, but I, right. I always kind of joke about like grabbing a soundbite and like <laughs> you know so the right. patriarchy is necessary for, for survival or something and I was like yeah, right, that's going to be that's that. going to be the what, you know it's just text message noise when you text you know what, what can you do some people want to quote mine you it's you can't caveat every single sentence even if you did they could snip out that part so yeah, yeah. all right okay well um, thank, thanks for thanks for indulging me on that no problem well, thank you for, to our uh, Patreon supporter, uh, Jesse Butterfield. Um, whoever I think you, we know exactly who that is. Whoever you are, we really appreciate it. <laughs> right. uh, it, it. It means a lot. So other than that, um, thanks to Kyle, who, yep. who, makes this so, who makes the sound quality uh, more palatable for human ears. Um, thanks also to David Gruyer and Sumerki Project for providing music for the podcast. And, you know, anybody who wants to, you know, if you just came across this somewhere, you can subscribe on iTunes or other RSS feeds. Uh, you can leave a review there. You can leave reviews on the website, thebasinconspiracy.com. I don't think um, you leave reviews there. You can leave. I'm sorry. Yeah. Comments per comments. episode. Yeah. Um, also, by the time this episode goes live, I want to put together a. Um, and you can comment on the subreddit as well. Yes. The subreddit. That's where I'm going to put this together on r slash the Bayesian conspiracy. I'm going to put together like a ask us anything sticky thread at the top to where like if there's a random question you have that you don't want to go through the trouble of digging up our email and you know doing it that way you're on Reddit already Um, and it doesn't pertain to an individual episode so it doesn't fit for that thread be like what's your thought on this you guys will put those together and get get around to those as we get around to them it's a damn Um, good idea so that'll be available and uh, yeah that's it Um, feel free to find us on Patreon or you know share this episode with your friends or whatever if you found this at all interesting Cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks.